Every Who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot. But the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Oh, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be perhaps that his shoes were too tight. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. But whatever the reason, his heart or his shoes, he stood there on Christmas Eve, hating the Who's. Staring down from his cave with a sour, grinchy frown at the warm, lighted windows below in their town. For he knew every Who down in Whoville beneath was busy now, hanging a holly Who wreath. And they're hanging their stockings, he snarled for the sneer. Tomorrow is Christmas. It's practically here. Then he growled with his Grinch fingers, nervously drumming. I must find some way to keep Christmas from coming. Give it up for the Grinch. What a character. <laughs> Everybody knows who the Grinch is. I borrowed this tie from a friend. It will be returned to its rightful owner after this weekend. But everybody has an opinion on the Grinch. You love the Grinch or hate the Grinch or both. A little girl walked up to me and saw my tie. She said, the Grinch. And I said, do you like the Grinch? And she said, yes, I do. But he is mean and sassy. <laughs> I've got a feeling she might have an issue with sassy. I don't know. We were talking about the Grinches that steal a thankful spirit out of us, how the Grinch steals Thanksgiving. Study done at the University of uh, Washington University about thankfulness and gratitude in the workplace and the unhealthy emotional environment that's created when you have a workforce that isn't grateful. What is it that attacks that? We talked about the first Grinch two weeks ago, the Grinch of narcissism, when it's all about us. Then the Grinch of cynicism, though you don't trust anybody's motives. And then this morning, one that I think affects all of us probably in some way or another, the Grinch of materialism. When materialism goes up, gratitude goes down. Now, when I talk about materialism, I need to divide it into two categories. The first is the philosophical position called materialism there is a teaching or an understanding a discipline called materialism and that's the belief that everything is made of matter and energy and no immaterial entities such as soul spirit supernatural gods exist everything that is real can be touched and has substance and rejects anything that would be spiritual outside of that or metaphysical it's a central element of secular humanism which rejects the traditional view of, of religion in favor of an ethical life based on reason and compassion rather than obedience to God or any other holy book. So that's a whole philosophical premise that says all that is real is what we can see and touch. It's an atheistic point of view. 
But I think you can see that spinning off from that becomes a practical form of materialism that you and I are more apt to deal with, and that's when we measure our lives on the basis of our possessions. Materialism considers material things and physical comfort more important than spiritual values. So it becomes primary. From that basis, we uh, begin to understand then that, that our lives become measured by what we have. You don't have to be rich to be materialistic. A hoarder is measured by what they have. You might be measured by the car that you drive or the job you have or the clothes you wear. A materialistic viewpoint that identifies who you are and your value. It's determining our worth by the stuff we have. And I think that's captured with this cartoon uh, that I thought captured materialism. Pig went to the tattoo parlor. What kind of tattoo do you want? I want to look like I have money. I don't have to have any, I just want to look like I have some. And I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I'm sure many of us have been in a place that we wanted to look successful, we wanted to look like we were important, or that we had resources that that would give us value. I read an article, an essay this week called What is Happiness, and challenged the reader to think this way. How many of you would enjoy seeing your income increase by 50% on January 1st. Let me see your hands. The rest of you are lying. I would. I'd love to see it go up 50% um, on January 1st. And then what would we think? We'd think, wow, wow. Now I can do all the things that I wanted to do but couldn't afford. Now I can buy everybody the gifts I wanted to buy them that I couldn't afford. Wow, now I'll actually be able to pay my Christmas debt But here's what will happen. An increase of 50% lived out for the next 12 months. A year from today, um, that 50% becomes absorbed into your lifestyle. And studies show that you'll be no happier a year from now than you are today. But 50% increase a year from now will be absorbed. And you'll be facing the same kind of concerns. I need another 50% increase in order to be happy. Because material things don't bring happiness this materialistic mindset affects gratitude by constantly comparing ourselves to others envy creeps in pushes gratitude out of the way and thanksgiving can't grow we look at those who have less than us and feel blessed we look at those who have more than us and feel envy and someone said the only time that you should look in your neighbor's bowl is to make sure they have enough. You don't look in your neighbor's bowl to see if you have as much as they do. Now, I do need to tell you that I have an advantage over all of you. I know on Monday what I'm going to preach, and I have a week long to repent and get prayed through. <laughs> and I'm going to admit to you something. When my wife and I go out to eat, we rarely order dessert. I, in fact, I should say it this way. I almost never order dessert when she's with me. <laughs> but on a special occasion when 
she deems it appropriate to get a dessert if we if I can talk her into not splitting it <laughs> and we both get the dessert I can't help it there's something in me that wants to make sure that her dessert's not a bigger slice than mine <laughs> anybody else know what I'm talking about elbow your neighbor and say that's you that he's talking about this morning it's a form of materialism that creeps its way into our lives. Scripture warns us of the dangers of the love of money in 1 Timothy chapter 6. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs so you have to wrestle with that it's not money that's evil and for charismatics we have to talk about that because we believe that God wants to bless us and that God wants to prosper us but you have to understand the cycle that that belongs in God wants to bless you so that you can bless others and bless the kingdom and as long as you're blessing others and blessing the kingdom that cycle can continue I've shared this before, but it was a shocking moment for me when I felt prompted by the Spirit to pray for people in the church who were having financial problems. And I said, I'm going to pray for you that God will bless you in some supernatural way that you don't know about. Money will come from a source you had no idea was coming, a complete surprise, if you'll give 50% of it to the kingdom. Because you didn't know it was coming anyway, and you're willing to give half of that to the kingdom. And I was stunned when less than half, about 25%, were willing to let me pray for them. What does that tell you? It means we have a materialistic heart. If God's going to bless me with a surprise. He probably knows I need all of it. That's the materialism that speaks. It's not that the love of money produces all kinds of evil, but out of the love for money, there isn't any evil that can't grow in that seedbed. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you love money, it can produce every kind of evil under the sun. So it's not having things that's the problem. It's whether or not things have you. Does it own you? If material things are what you're talking about when you say, I'm blessed, then you have no idea what a real blessing is. Someone else said, if you want to know how rich you are, find out how many things you have that money can't buy. Materialism gets a hold of us. Loving money for what it can do for me and how it defines me is the problem. And we have to really guard against that. It's destructive. So how can we guard against that? Because it destroys gratitude. We're constantly comparing with what others have. We feel like we don't have enough. We deserve more. How do we stay away from that? Well, I think the best place to look, or one great place to look anyway, is Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. It's in um, uh, the Synoptic Gospels, but we'll be looking at it in Mark chapter 10. Now, let me clue you in on something about when I'll put verses on the screen and when I won't. If I'm going to be in one place in Scripture and not move, it won't be on the screen because I want you looking at your Bible. So if you have a Bible or digital device... You won't find it up here. I want you to look at the scripture. But if I'm bouncing all over the place, it'll be up there because I don't want to wait on you. <laughs> okay? And just to keep us moving. So this morning won't be up here. I want you to look into the text, this story 
of Jesus dealing with the rich young ruler? How do we defend against materialism? Well, I think it starts with this question, at least in this story. How do you define what is good? How do you define what is good? The Bible tells us in verse 17 of Mark 10, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Now let's stop there because to understand the story, you have to really enter into what's happening there. This rich young ruler, this leader, comes running to Jesus. In other words, he didn't bump into him at a wedding or at a social gathering. He sought him out. And when he sought him out, he ran to him and didn't engage in idle conversation. He knelt down before him to interact with him. So you have to see, this is someone who's asking about eternal life, that spiritual matters are important to him, and that he values Jesus. It's one of submission. It's one of worship. It's one of passion. It's one of hunger. I want you to feel that because it clarifies why he reacts the way he does. He wants eternal life. He wants to worship Jesus. He wants to please him. It would appear that all of his priorities are in the right place. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' response is interesting. There are a number of ways you can interpret that. He says, why do you call me good? I thought for a long time, for years, that what Jesus was, was or doing was to deflect the statement. Why do you call me good? Look to God. There's only one that's good, except he is God. And this wasn't a rebuking relationship. This man is kneeling, wanting an answer, and I think Jesus is asking something different. Why do you call me good? What does that mean? Because there's none good but God. And if you define me as good, you're defining me as God, and you're going to be accountable for everything that follows. Remember an interaction that I had with a fellow minister a number of years ago. I had gotten to know him in the first church that we pastored, and we had some disagreement over the gifts of the Spirit and speaking in tongues and all that goes with that. <coughs> and it was fine. There, there wasn't tension or hardness. He just didn't agree. So then he leaves the community. About, <coughs> excuse me, about 10 years pass, and I get a phone call. It's this friend of mine. He said, I'm going through a situation that I don't understand, and I believe that God told me to call you. Now, here's something I would suggest to you. Don't play the God card with me, because I'm going to hold you to it. I said, so do you believe God told you to call me? Yes, God told me to call you. Do you think that when God told you to call me, that God knew what I was going to say to you? Yes, I believe that God knew what you were going to say to me. So then, if God told you to call me, and God knew what I was going to say to you, do you believe then that God will hold you accountable for what I'm about to say? I mean, isn't that the natural progression? 
It didn't go well after that. <laughs> because he didn't really believe what he was saying. Either God didn't tell him to call me, or God didn't know what I was going to say, or he wasn't willing to submit to what God was calling him to. That's what's happening here. Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler, why are you calling me good? There's none good but God. The table is set now. Remember, he ran. He's kneeling. I want eternal life. Good teacher, why do you call me good? It links it all together. How you define what is good matters. When we talk about goodness, we're talking about the moral sense in which God is absolutely good. We're told about goodness that we're to prove it, we are to do it, we are to work it, we're to cleave to it. Over and over we're told how we're to respond to the issue of goodness. And what you define as good will shape your spiritual life. Good in the nature of God, good as God himself, what you define as good will determine how you meander through this maze of life and the pressure of materialism. What is good has to be measured by how it impacts your relationship to God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Young man turns 16, gets his driver's license. Young man turns 16, gets his driver's license, he needs a car, a vehicle. And his parents, who want him to be responsible, have told him that he's going to have to make payments and pay the insurance. Hallelujah. So what does he need to do? He has to get a job. The car is a good thing, and he buys a good car, and everyone around applauds him for his step forward on a good car, which is a good thing. But the job that he gets requires that he works on Sunday morning and on Wednesday nights. And so he can't be in church anymore because he has a good job to pay for a good car that's moving him away from God that's no longer good. Are you hearing me? It's no longer good because how it affects your relationship to God. That's not a new story. I remember hearing a youth pastor many years ago saying there are, four word, there are two four-letter words in youth ministry that destroy, destroy kids. It's cars and jobs. I have to have a job to pay for my car, and I have to have a car to go to a job. And so we celebrate that. They're being responsible. But do you see how a good thing is no longer a good thing because of how it ref impacts relationship to God? Do you know ministry is a good calling, but it may not be a good thing? I've watched pastors lose their families over their commitment to the good thing we call ministry. Now, no one has put those pressures on us here, but I want to tell you what I've observed over the years. And I didn't grow up in a preacher's home. Um, so far from it, you wouldn't even compare the two. But the Bible says, What will it profit a man if he gain the whole world 
and lose his own soul. The corollary is, what does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his family? Or what does it profit a preacher if he builds a great ministry but loses his kids? It's no longer a good thing. I've watched pastors that we're at the beck and call of everybody's whim in a church. Whenever anyone calls, leave a birthday party, leave family events, can't be home at night, can't do all of those kinds of things, and then wonder why their kids are bitter and walk away from God. Because a good thing that negatively impacts our relationship with God is not a good thing. Early in ministry, I had a number of opportunities to preach outside the local church was preaching in various places around the country. I had the opportunity to preach overseas, was asked to do a general council in a, another nation overseas, and these were starting to back up, and I'll never forget, it really irritated me. My wife um, had me sit down at the table and said, we have to talk about this. There's no question, this isn't a pat on my back. Don't, don't come to me afterwards and talk about my narcissism. She'll verify what I'm telling you. Had I put a little effort into, into that, I could literally have built an international ministry. But she said, God called us to pastor and raise a family. And how are you going to balance that being gone weeks at a time, traveling the world, and not be here to influence our kids? Now, some people can do that, and they make a commitment and do it, but it wasn't my calling. I'd have been pursuing something good that would have cost me something even greater. I've made some sacrifices. I've said no to some good things. And so there are times where I have boundaries. I don't let the church, and none of you are doing this. This is a wonderful church. You all get this. But I don't let the church dictate how I'm going to live my life. We have a staff. We have a team. Everybody pitches in. But I'm not going to let a good thing steal away from me my family. Hello? Amen. Is anybody hearing me? You may have a great job. But if you have to work and work and work at that great job and you're never there at your home with your kids and you're never in church, it's not a good thing. Materialism becomes more important when we define good outside of the context of how it affects our relationship to God. The only things that can be called good are those things that cause our relationship with God to prosper. Hallelujah. This will not last forever. What about, I have some really good friends, really? Where are they taking you? What road are they walking you down? They lead you back into alcoholism and drug addiction and ungodliness. They're not good friends. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I'm trying to say to you, how you define what is good is primary. Everything that is good has to be measured by how it impacts our relationship to God. Then second, you have to ask, what is godly? How do you measure what is godly? So now, I need you to grab hold of something in the story here. It says in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. You have to understand the environment that this interaction takes place in. When Jesus confronts the Pharisees, it's not out of affection for them, it's rebuking them. 
But something's transpired here that's caused Jesus to be moved in his heart with love toward this young man, and it's about keeping the commandments. Now, what I find interesting here is that Jesus doesn't ask him if he kept them all. How many of you believe that Jesus knew all the commandments? He only focuses on the ones that are pragmatic, that have to do with how you live your life. You want, uh, you want eternal life? then don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. He says, all these I've kept from my youth. I've done all these things, and Jesus loved him. Jesus loves people that behave well. <laughs> I know he's a friend of publics and sinners, but sometimes we need to forget Jesus loves people that do the right things. He loves good people too and his heart is moved because this young man has tried really hard to do the right things and to live a godly life but doing right isn't enough Jesus says with his heart moved with love do you feel that you get that his heart is moved with love not a rebuke he's not chastening him he wants him to have eternal life he wants him to make the next step Whenever God deals with you, it's because he wants something good for you. So he says, <laughs> one thing you lack, sell everything you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. He's not saying, oh yeah, really? You think you're ready? It's not that kind of mindset at all. His heart, I want you to come, but I can see there's something standing in the way between you and I and it's your stuff and the only way I can get you from where you are to where you need to be is we have to get all of your stuff out of the way we've got to move that it doesn't mean that every one of us has to sell everything in order to follow Jesus but it's but the fact of the matter is that Jesus knows what's standing in the way there's a conflict here between the good teacher and his good teaching over godliness when I was growing up, I remember it being preached. Pastor Larry, you'll probably be able to affirm this. Don't ever tell God you won't do something because he'll make you do it. Now, what in the world? Okay, God. I mean, the way that works in my mind, okay, God, I'd hate to have to eat a piece of pie today. You don't tell him tell him what you don't want to do and he's going to make you do that go to Africa God I'll never go to Africa now there are things I wanted to do I had an opportunity some years ago to pursue it wasn't just offered to me but to pursue pastoring an international church in Moscow and to me that was like that doesn't get any better than that to be in Moscow an international church speaking English to touch the world but it wasn't my calling. It wasn't my place. So I've had a lot of things I've said yes to that he said no to. So why would we have the feeling that if you say no to something, he's going to make you do it? Hear me, please. It's because whatever you're saying no about, you've locked in a closet, and you're hoping he doesn't touch it. The young man's face fell. It's as though he said, the thing that I've feared has come upon me. I was afraid he was going to ask for that. 
and I just can't give it. It's in the way. What is that you're holding on to? What is it that you hope he doesn't ask? If I were to walk around the auditorium this morning and say, what is it that you don't want God to ask you for? What would be the first thing that would come to your mind? Don't ask me for this. God, don't ask me for this. It means it's between you and him. And it's got to be moved out of the way. Is anyone hearing me this morning? What is that thing? What is that thing that gets in the way? And I, I shared this first service, and I, I don't mean it. I don't want to be misunderstood. But when Josh was in elementary school, just primary age, I had a dream that he died, and I saw his funeral. And I lived, oh God, don't, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. Then we went through a valley. And when cancer ravaged his body and God in his wisdom chose to take him home, this song resonated in me. I have found his grace is all complete. He supplies my every need. While I sit and learn at Jesus' feet, I am free, yes, free indeed. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory, and the half has never yet been told. What I'm saying to you is you can hold on to things as tightly as you want to hold on to them, and they're not yours anyway. You can't protect them, but you can trust him that whatever battle, whatever fire, whatever thing you go through. I met with a missionary couple this past week. Um, some of you know uh, Donna, David Donna Collins, and it's now Donna Delp. And I had known David Delp for some years and spent some time with them this week. And they talked about the tragedy of losing their spouse. And what's funny is, they said to me, I can't imagine anything worse than losing a child. And I said, I can't imagine anything worse than losing a spouse. However you would measure it, this is what I know. Whatever value you go through, if you've given it all to him, you can trust him all the way through. Is anybody hearing me this morning? I'm talking about you can't hold it back. You can't make it yours. What is it that if you asked for, you'd say, anything but that, anything but that, that thing is standing between you and Jesus. And for you to be what he wants you to be, it's got to move out of the way. Doesn't mean you have to lose it. It means it has to move out of the way. His face fell. The Bible tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. In the verse in Timothy where it talks about the love of money is the root of all evil, how it begins is this way. Before that, it says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. And then tells us of the dangers. We brought nothing in this world and we brought nothing out of it. You know, don't you, that you're gonna <laughs> that you're gonna die the way you were born? Bald, no teeth, and eating puree. <laughs> I'll never forget putting my one of my kids in the car seat. Those car seats. How many remember when we I slept in the back window of the car and lived? 
Now you have to bubble wrap them, put them in the back seat, and not drive over five miles an hour. You know, you got to do all, all this stuff. No, it's, it's all great. So I'm putting my kid, and we did all that, putting one of my kids in the car seat. My son looked at me and said, I can't wait for the day, Dad, that I put you in the car seat and I get to drive. <laughs> I thought that day could come. That day could come. You, look at this. You didn't bring anything into this world. You came broke, naked, and unable to care for yourself. Brought nothing in. Then we spend our lives amassing stuff so that we can die without it. Any of you remember Lowell Lundstrom? Anybody? Hold up your hand, if Lowell Lundstrom. Oh, look at this. You, you're, you're my people. I'm so glad. One of my favorite songs. It is corny, but that country gospel sound with Lowell Lundstrom, I've never seen a hearse pull a U-Haul trailer. Till I did one day. I, I don't know what was up with that. I don't know why the hearse was pulled a U-Haul trailer. I have no idea. Didn't ask. But the point being, you leave it all behind. Now think about that. You didn't bring it in, and you're not taking it out. Why do we cling so tightly to it here? You can't hold on to it. You brought nothing into this world. You're going to take nothing out. That means it's all transient, that it needs to be used in ways that honor the kingdom and honor God. Godliness, God-likeness with contentment is the goal. <clears throat> and it cracks me up, some of the verses we quote. Um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We put that on our refrigerator and we think it means I can leap tall buildings in a single bound. I can do anything. Do you know the context for that? Paul said, I've learned how to have a lot and I've learned how to have little. I can do all things. I can be content with a lot and I can be content with nothing. Those are the all things that Paul says that he can do. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Then third, how do you value the gospel? So the young man says no, and he walks away, and Jesus is sorrowful but doesn't pursue him. And, and as he walks away, Jesus said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Then in the NIV, verse 24, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? That's a really terrible translation. The Bible wasn't written in the NIV. It was written in Greek. And you go back to Greek language, the majority of manuscripts, he repeats the question for emphasis. He doesn't diminish it to make it palatable. You see what I'm saying? He's not saying, how can the rich make it? Oh, how can anybody make it? He repeats it again. How hard it is for rich people to go to heaven. Yes, how hard it is for rich people to go to heaven. Say, well, I'm glad I'm not rich. Really? Living in America puts you in about the top 10% of wealth in our entire planet wherever you are in that spectrum. And so then he says to them, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. <clears throat> and the disciples are saying, the rich can't make it, who then can be saved? I mean, the rich have privilege, right? The rich have abilities, the rich have resources. 
shows how materialistic their mindset was now i've heard this preached about the needle gate that's not another scandal in washington but the needle gate in jerusalem and the story goes like this that as you would come up to the city gates in jerusalem at a certain time in the evening the main doors or gates would be closed but the big gates that would close would have a small gate for people who arrived late and to get through the small gate it was called the eye of the needle that you would have to take all of your uh, 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 load off of the camel slide it through the door and then the camel would have to get down on its knees and crawl through the door that the only way you get through the eye of the needle is if you humble yourself and lay down your baggage and crawl through the problem with that is there's nothing in Jewish history that supports that someone made it up and then it got on Facebook No, what, what do we do with this story? We try to make the impossible possible. We try to find a way that what God says can't happen to say, but there is a way it can happen. Now, I can just see the disciples walking up, and I don't care how big a needle you use. I don't, I don't care if you have a knitting needle that has an eye in it that you have to take both hands to hold. You're not getting a camel through that. I can see Peter walking up to a camel and says, there's some way we can get him through here. But you can't, because that's the point. It's impossible for rich people. Why would he say rich people? It's impossible for people who get their value from the things they possess to go to heaven. But with God, all things are possible. You've got to let go of your stuff. You've got to let go of your effort. You've got to let go of your earning or, or deserving. You've got to just come to him and say, I'm not, even the disciples, they say, well, then who can be saved if the rich can't? You have to, it's not about what you have. It's not about your abilities. It's not what you've done. It's not what you've earned. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of his works, lest any man should boast. You can't get through there in your own strength, and you can have all the wealth of the world, and it won't get you through the eye of the needle. It happens by a miracle of God. I've said for years that most Christians would be happier if their neighbors acted like Christians than if they really got saved. We want to get rid of bad behaviors that make our life easier. But doing all the right things, he's doing all the right things. And he's rewarded but it won't get him in the kingdom. It won't get him in the kingdom. So Peter says, I love Peter. He says what everybody is thinking and doesn't have the courage to say. I mean, he's just confounded. <laughs> the rich can't make it. We've left everything to follow you. I want you to watch what happens here. It's really important to follow the progression. 
Truly, I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters, mothers or fathers or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. And we stop there, and isn't that wonderful? Whatever you sacrifice, he's going to give back to you. And I, and I know a lot of that is true. Growing up, I did not have a spiritual mentor. My, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but my dad was not a spiritual help at all. But when I came into the kingdom, God gave me spiritual fathers. I've had family that hasn't always been there when I needed them to be there. I, mother that wasn't there when I needed her to be there, but God gave me spiritual mothers, and God gave me spiritual family. I've had friends that let me down, but when I came into the kingdom, God gave me friends that were there in the dark times of my life. Or is anybody hearing me now? I'm telling you that he's saying that when you give, whatever you give doesn't go unnoticed. He will reward. It's it's important to understand that. But with that will come persecutions. In other words, this isn't a free pass. It isn't you earn the blessing It's that this world is filled with rain on the just and the unjust. And sometimes it's going through the valley that produces the greater glory for his kingdom. Come on, help me now. He's saying God doesn't forget. He will keep track and you will be rewarded, but you're still going to go through the struggles. You're still going to have the battles, but, but, in the age to come. Woo! I feel better. Sorry about that. Praise break. But in the age to come, eternal life. Oh, that's what I'm shooting for. Everything that I have now is going to burn, but I'm headed to a place which have foundations whose builder and maker is God. And I'm going to live there forever. That's the goal of my life. Not how much can I amass here, but can I make it over there? And then he just has to mess it up. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. many of you do black friday i don't know what you're saying next no i have no idea what you're talking about i do blue monday i don't do black friday well imagine how many of you know there are people that do black friday and some people will go camp out all day and night so they're first in line i've seen the pictures tents and sleeping bags and heaters and they're there now imagine that there's this great deal that you want and you've been in the tent all night you've been waiting there the whole time you brought along your little fishing porta potty i mean you've been there sacrificing and it's five minutes before the store opens (laughs) and the owner comes out and says we're changing the rules this year those of you that are first are going to the end of the line. <laughs> I feel that pain. <laughs> and those of you that just arrived are going to get to go in first. Here's how you describe that. Somebody's going to die. 
somebody somebody's going to die why would Jesus say such a thing why because eternity isn't about how long you've been in line it's not about how much you sacrifice it's not how much you give how much you give and how much you sacrifice shows how you value the kingdom but he'll determine your place in the kingdom and it won't be based on your stuff there are going to be people in heaven that are going to shock you the way they're rewarded people you didn't pay any attention to let me give you one closing example I've shared this numerous times, but it's just, it just, it's one I can't get away from. I, there was a period of time in my life when, when things got bad and no one in my family was going to church and I was going and wasn't sure why and I was getting really bitter and angry. I was just in maybe junior high and, and none of it made any sense. I just bitter. And I had a dream that I missed the rapture that was as real as I'm saying here right now. My knees hit the floor. I prayed to you, Jesus, forgive me. I got right with God. And I didn't know for years why God gave me that dream. I graduated from college, and my home pastor says, Gary, I want you to know something. But when you were in junior high and high school, my wife prayed for you every day sometimes hours a day she prayed for you she never said a word to me i mean I, she was friendly but never how are you doing how's your faith praying for, not once told me she was praying for me the person that i thought didn't care about me at all is the one who cared about me the most the first shall be last and the last shall be first because he keeps the best records and how do you value the kingdom you don't value the kingdom when you're amassing your own kingdom you value the kingdom when you're investing what you have into his kingdom Stacy if you can the Grinch of materialism steals gratitude because it never has enough Proverbs verse 30 says, The leech has two daughters. Give, give, they cry. There are three things that are never satisfied for that never say enough. The grave, the barren womb, land which is never satisfied with water, and fire which never says enough. The leech has two daughters who yell, give, give. You're driven by materialism. It'll never be enough. It'll never be enough. Goodness is defined by how it affects your relationship to God. Godliness is measured by our relationship with God, and the gospel is valued by your sacrifice before God. So, I'd like everyone to stand. I don't want to take just a minute for you to close your eyes and shut yourself in with God. And I want you to look around your spiritual house. What is that one thing you hope he doesn't ask for? What is it? 
God, would you sweep over this room this morning? Is there something we've got hidden, locked in a room that we've not been willing to let you have access to? Something that we would say, God, anything but that, anything but that. Show us what that is. Church, I'm asking you then, once you see it, would you at least have a dialogue? Because you can trust him with it. You can trust him with it. With no one looking around, if you know what that thing is, you can see it. Just slip up your hand and acknowledge that to him, would you? Thank you. Hands going up all around. Just acknowledge. I know what it is. Just slip it up. I know what it is. I know what it is. Jesus, you see our hands going up all around this room. We don't want things. We don't want materialism. We don't want our own agenda. We don't want our own temporal stuff, even if that's people, to get in the way of a relationship with you. Show us how to surrender it all to you. Show us how to surrender it all to you. Because we want eternal life in the world to come. And we want to make a difference in the world that is. As we go into the Advent season, help us, Lord, to remember what this is all about. It's not about our stuff. It's about the redemption that you came to buy. In Jesus' name. And everyone that loves him said, amen, amen. God bless you. Turn and greet someone, would you? Just encourage someone this morning. Let them know that you love them. You're glad they're here today.